You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. And what we're doing is working through uh, the first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. And we have uh, taken our time these first five weeks in Genesis 1 and 2 because it's so foundational to so many of the, of the big questions in life. And so we have talked about uh, how we are created to worship. We have talked about what it means that we are created in the image of God. We have talked about work. We've talked about rest. Last week we talked about community, how God has made us in such a way that not even fellowship with God or paradise itself would be enough. Uh, that we are actually made by God in such a way that we need others to know ourselves fully and to know God fully. And this week, what we're going to do is kind of uh, do the second part of last week's sermon. We're going to, last week was kind of the big picture of community. Uh, this week, we're going to focus in on one particular relationship, which is the marriage relationship. Uh, Debbie and I, some of you know, married young. Uh, we were 21. I had like two and a half jobs and a class that I took over lunch break. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We had no clue. But we lived in East Texas, and so if you're in East Texas and you can afford it, you get married. There's nothing else to do, you know, so you do it. And we had no idea what we were doing. It was extremely difficult. Um, we, we experienced a lot of conflict in those first couple of years. Uh, you know, we've joked about this. It's sort of half true, half joking. You know, we had talked about how uh, divorce would never be an option for us, and in many ways, that's what got us through the first couple of years, just our sheer commitment to one another. Now, it wasn't that bad. Uh, there were great moments, um, but it really was the binding thing that kept us going. One of the things that, uh, that buried us in those early years is we felt like we were the only people that had the problems that we had. Everybody else we looked at seemed great. And so for the last 16 years of our marriage, we have been pretty committed to being open and honest about just the struggles that we have. And it's amazing how much better it makes people feel to know that we're really messed up. Uh, it's glorious. And so uh, I know that not all of you are married. Some of you are like, oh, I came on the wrong day. But listen, we all need to hear this. And there's a couple reasons why. As Kendall mentioned, um, family and marriage in particular is one of the predominant metaphors of the gospel in the Bible. So we can learn something about the gospel just by thinking about the nature of marriage as God designed it. Here's the second thing, the second reason we all need to hear this is because uh, we do not uh, get a good picture of what biblical marriage is like. We don't get it in our culture, certainly not from our media. Uh, we don't get it in the conversations that we overhear. Debbie and I uh, were at a restaurant a couple weeks ago, and there were just multiple conversations going on around us about marriage, and all of them made us want to, what. Well, at times I wanted to cry, and at times I wanted to hit somebody, because uh, they were just so far from what God designed marriage to be. And for some of us, uh, even in the homes that we grew up in, we didn't get a great picture of what biblical marriage looks like. So look, nobody's just telling you what marriage is supposed to be like, and I don't know of any place that you would hear it other than in Christian community uh, that is looking at what the Scripture says about it. The view of, of marriage that's, that's predominant in our culture is one of a contract. In other words, it's something that two people can enter into. Uh, it's for their mutual benefit. It's conditioned upon their performance to meet expectations. And if it doesn't go like you wanted to, if it doesn't work out, you know, you can, you can go also. No, nobody's going to blame you for that. And that is driven by the underlying consumer mentality that we all have, like us in the room. We have it. It's just it's the water we swim in in America. We're, we're consumers. Uh, we are trained to think that we deserve happiness at any cost. Uh, we are trained to feel like we're entitled to a user-friendly, highly customizable product with a Costco return policy, right? And so we bring that kind of mindset 
into our relationships. We bring that into marriage even. In contrast to that kind of consumer contractual view, uh, the biblical view of marriage is one of a covenant. Uh, it's, it's a covenantal commitment that two people make. It's, it's like the vows that we give at our wedding ceremony. In a contract, it's the relationship itself that sustains the vows. So if the relationship doesn't exist, you don't have to fulfill the vows. But in biblical marriage, it's, it's the vows, it's the commitment that sustains the relationship. All right? if, that, if you didn't get that, don't worry about it. Uh, here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to look at this first story of marriage that you just heard Celise read. Because I want you to see that marriage, far from being something that's just platonic or contractual, is, it's beautiful. It's glorious. So I just want to walk through this, and then we're going to look at, we're going to get practical about how to have this kind of marriage. All right, in verse 15, I'm just going to point out a few things as we go here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is his job. And the Lord commands the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So I just want you to see here, um, God has put Adam in a garden. He has, he has a job that he was literally made for. He loves it. He has unhindered fellowship with God uh, because he, hasn't, he doesn't sin. God speaks directly to him. He receives God's word from God verbally. All right, this is a really good setup. And we looked at this last week. Even though all of this stuff is good and very good, there's something that's not good. And last week we saw that that God looked at that and said, it's not good that man should be alone. Now this week, we're just going to pick up the second half of of verse 18. The first half he says, it's not good that man should be alone. And the second half he says, I will make a helper fit for him. We'll get to the meaning of those words in a little bit. What I want you to see now is that God is going to make Adam a wife. That's his plan. And I want you to see how this plays out. It's, it's beautiful. So, out of, uh, let's see, the Lord God said to them, I'll make a helper suit up for him. So out of the ground of the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So here's a picture of Adam's authority, of his naming authority. Uh, God is saying, will this work for you? Does this work? And I don't know how many animals were around them, but it's a lot. And so he's creating in Adam this deep sense of desperation, this deep sense that, like, man, I, I know that I long for something, I just can't name it. Like, I can't conceive of what it is. I think God's doing this because he wants Adam to know that what he needs comes from him, comes from God alone. Adam can't name it. He certainly can't create it. So then God steps in. He takes action. Uh, after he named everything, in verse 20, Uh, It says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay? So, I just want you to see how every aspect of this relationship is God's doing. He makes the man. He sees the man has a need. He creates Eve to meet the need. He brings her to him like a, like a father walks his daughter down the aisle and gives him to Adam. You see, God is the ultimate matchmaker. He's the ultimate father. He even performs the ceremony. He brings him to Adam. Adam sees her and rejoices with song, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, at last. And then God performs the ceremony and makes this declaration that 
for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. We even have the honeymoon here. They are naked and without shame. All right, it's all God's doing from beginning to end. We live in a culture that makes sport of disparaging marriage. It just wears you down. And I'm telling you, don't buy it. It's glorious. It's good. It's of God. All right. So I want you to have that foundation. And for the rest of our time, we're going to get kind of practical. So if God created this glorious and good marriage, how come it doesn't always feel so glorious and so good? What, what are we to do to bring the gospel to bear in our marriage relationships? All right, how is marriage supposed to work? Well, last week, as we talked about community, we looked at four dynamics of community in this text. If you remember that, uh, we said what they have here is each person has a relationship with God that is, that is personal and intimate, but it's not private. It's public. It's to be shared. That they are on mission together. They live for something that's beyond themselves. They receive one another as a gift from God. Uh, they embrace those who are different and the differences in others. Uh, that's the DNA of a healthy community. If you look at any thriving church community, you will find all those things in play. And I think the same can be said of marriage. A healthy, biblical, godly, gospel-centered marriage has those four dynamics in play. And so I'm not going to explain all those like we did last week. Um, It's on the podcast if you want that. But I just want to walk through those exact same things again and make some specific applications to the marriage relationship. May throw in some stuff for you singles as well. All right, the first dynamic of a healthy marriage is uh, that they, the husband and the wife have, each have a, an intimate, personal relationship with God. There's a bit of tension in this text because uh, you see that they are uniquely made in the image of God. They are individual beings. They have relationship with God. But then at the end, God says that they two should become one flesh. And so there's... There's diversity and there's unity in a marriage. And there's some tension in how that plays out in a relationship. But it's a beautiful tension because it actually reflects uh, the tension we feel when we try to explain the Trinity. That God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in unity, yet there is a distinction of persons. Well, try to figure that out. But it's beautiful, and we can experience it as it plays out. And so what are we to make of this tension in marriage? Well, I would say this. uh, Married couples... They are not independent, right? It's not two independent, totally independent beings. In other words, I don't look to myself, and Debbie doesn't look to herself to gain a sense of identity and purpose, right? But neither are we codependent. In other words, we don't look to each other to gain our sense of identity and purpose. A married couple is interdependent, meaning uh, they help each other look to God to be rooted and grounded in their sense of who they are, their identity, and what they're supposed to do, their purpose, because those things come from God. We said last week that um, friendships are formed not when people look to each other, but when they look to something uh, that they both love, right? So a friendship isn't just like, hey, we need to work on the friendship. A friendship is two people who are chasing after something else, and they find themselves being pulled together by that thing. And so in Christian marriage, you have two people who are pursuing intimate relationship with God, and that is pulling them together, not just as friends, but as people who in some way share that relationship with God. And we'll talk a little bit about how that happens practically. Uh, And this is huge, because our tendency in marriage, for some of us, is to make the relationship our God. 
John Newton, who is a, um, you probably know as a hymn writer, who wrote Amazing Grace, was also a pastor, a really good one. And in one of the letters that he's writing to uh, this young couple who's pursuing marriage, he tells them, you know, your greatest danger is not the prospect of a bad marriage, but the prospect of a good one. And what he means by that is that there's a chance in which you uh, so idolize the marriage that you look to it for your sense of well-being and your sense of comfort and your sense of security. You put all of your hope in having a good marriage. And one of the signs that you're doing that is that uh, you look to your spouse to meet all of your needs and you get really frustrated when they don't. That's how we idolize our marriage. The same is true of singles who imagine that marriage will solve all their problems or it will meet all of their deepest needs. It actually does just the opposite. It magnifies all your problems, makes you frustrated that your needs aren't getting met. It points you to God in that way. Now, I'm not saying that you can love somebody too much, right? C.S. Lewis deals with this. He says that we, um, the issue isn't that we can love somebody too much. It's just that we can love somebody too much in proportion to our love for God. And in that case, it's our love for God that is inordinately weak, right? We have to love God more than we love even our spouse. A husband or a wife is a, is a spectacular gift from God. But as with any gift, uh, the point is not the gift itself. It's not an end. It's a means to point us to the giver. And so when God meets your need through your spouse, it ought to move you to worship and thanksgiving to God. And when you have a need that is not met by your spouse, when your spouse lets you down, that happens every now and then, it ought to move you and remind you of your dependence upon God and move you to prayer for yourself and for your spouse. That's how a gift works. Here's the point. If you want a great marriage, then don't make it the most important thing in your life. Put God above everything else, and you'll be on your way to a really good marriage. Last week, I asked you um, in this regard how your friendship with God is going. You know, like, do you, do you relate to him personally? Talk with him? Pray, with, pray to him? Uh, do, you, do you know what his voice sounds like in your life? Do you, do you have a sense for what his presence feels like in your life? It's, it's cultivating that kind of friendship with God that helps you cultivate friendship with your spouse. And I think one of the practical questions for marriages is, how do couples do that together? How do they cultivate friendship with God together? And there's a lot of confusion about this in the Christian world. And so, you know, we've all heard stories of that couple. Like, so there's that couple that didn't just buy the couple's devotional. They actually went through it, like, every day at nighttime together, you know. Good night, sweetie. And there's that guy who, before he leaves his house in the morning, pronounces a blessing on his family. And there's the couple that in the morning they get up, they get on their knees, and they surrender themselves to God for the day, and they pray for each other. And there's couples that are reading Greek to each other in bed, you know. So all that exists. I'm positive. I'm sure of it. I've heard of it. But what we tend to do is we take all of those things and we put them into this one phantom couple that we compare ourselves to and we feel just terrible about it. That couple doesn't exist. I mean, if you're here, then God bless you. Just be quiet about it. Um, That couple buries you. And so a few years ago, a number of years ago, eight years ago or so, I wrote a little book on community. It's not that great, but there are some good parts in it. And one of the things in the book was it basically made a case that we should practice spiritual disciplines with others because in America we've made everything so isolated. Well, one of the guys at our church in Omaha read it, thought that was a great idea, and then imposed the plan on his wife immediately. And he's an attorney type, and she's not. And so 
he got home that night and he had this like this whole like agenda of things that they were going to do to spend time in the word together. Well, look, they could they didn't read anything in the same way. It, it, it turned out to be more frustrating than anything else. It wasn't a blessing at all. It made her want to get away from him. And he came to me and he's like, why isn't it working? This is what you said to do. Well, that's what we end up doing. We take this phantom couple and we think that that's what you should do exactly in your marriage. You've got to have more discernment than that. And so here, here are a couple of my thoughts about how a couple ought to, ought to cultivate friendship with God together. I do think that one of the key elements is God's word. Right? What's underlying that, the value here, is that you would invite one another into your relationship with God. Right? So that you would be reading the Bible at the very least and sharing what God is teaching you with your, with your spouse. That you guys would learn from one another, that you would maybe even correct each other, help each other learn what God's word is saying, help each other apply it to your lives. And so, you know, you, you have to read it, you have to talk about it, that's all assumed in there. It's interesting that God gives Adam the command, and there's some implication that he's to uh, share that with Eve. That actually comes out to be pretty important in Genesis 3, which we'll get to next week. I'll just say this for now. When God comes to them after they sin, he comes to Adam. Well, Eve ate the apple. Yeah, but he comes to Adam. And so, husbands, I'm just putting this on you. It's not that it's completely your responsibility, but there needs to be a pattern of initiative on your part to have conversations about what God is teaching you in his word and to invite that from your wife. One of the great examples of this in our community is Brandon Reyes. I didn't ask you this, but I'm sure you don't mind me bragging on you. Uh, when they first started coming to our small group uh, last year, they didn't really say much. And I was like, man, what, what's going on with them? And as I got to know Brandon, I, I learned that actually before every group, they would go through the material together as a couple and talk about it. And then afterwards, they would talk about it again. And after church, they talk about the sermons. There's this, there's this ongoing conversation about what God's teaching them. Uh, Brandon was just sharing last week how he started uh, last week working through the long story short devotional with his boys in the morning. And just that very simple 10-minute intentional thing to talk about God's word together has brought some order and some um, beauty to other parts of their lives that he couldn't have expected. It's just simple. Don't, don't make it complicated. Just read the Bible, talk about it, and invite each other into it. All right, very similarly, uh, pray together. Now, this has been a struggle for me because I... Um, I tend to think too grandiose about things. And so when I think about praying with my wife, I'll be like, okay, we need to light candles and chant monastic prayers. And, you know, it needs to be like a really big deal. But actually, Debbie doesn't want that. What she really likes is just when spontaneously she's talking about something and I say, well, let's pray about that. And we pray about it for like 90 seconds. She loves that. She loves it when I invite her into the things that I'm thinking about and wrestling with and ask her to pray. And it's just real simple. And so I know that praying together, for some of you, that feels like you would rather, you know, that's right below pulling out your fingernails on a list of things you don't want to do. And it's because you just haven't done it, and it's, not, it's awkward, it's tense, but it's really not going to be once you jump into it, I promise you. God wants you to do it. Your spouse wants to do it with you. So just do it. Just figure out, what is it going to be? When can we pray? I used to tell Debbie, hey, could we just pray for like five minutes and then be done no matter what? Because that's the only way I'm going to like get into this thing on the front end. And over time, we just built the discipline of praying together, and it, and it grew. All right. Here's the last thing. Go to church together. Uh, come here with your spouse, sit next to each other, hold hands, sing songs, write little notes to each other during the sermon, do all of that. Just be together with God's people in worship. And I can't tell you why that helps you. I just know that it does over time. 
I just know that there's something about your presence together over time with God's people that will help you cultivate friendship with God, with each other. All right. There's a few things to cultivate relationship with God. Let's look at the second dynamic. They have a commission from God. They have a calling, a vocation. They are uh, commissioned to fill and multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion. Uh, He puts them in the garden to work it and to keep it. And so I want you to see the context uh, for, for this. When God says, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him, it's right after he put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Right? So it is in the midst of Adam's calling and vocation and work that God looks at him and says, man, you need help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make someone for you. And he makes Eve. In other words, Adam's calling is not a solo project. Uh, his vocation is not a place that he disappears to from 8 to 5 and then you know, shifts gears into his actual life after that. That's not what it is. They're in this thing together. And it's so important to work that out in your relationship. Uh, For Debbie and I, uh, when we were getting assessed in our network called X29 to plant churches, uh, here's how it goes. You do a bunch of writing and all that stuff, but you have a two-hour interview with five pastors and maybe some of their wives, and they're just going to ask you questions. You think it's going to be about like theology and church planting philosophy, and there's a little bit about that, but you know what most of it is? They talk to the wife. They just focus on her. What's this guy like? Are you in this thing or is he just dragging you into this? How, are, are you guys in this together? That's really the main thing they want to know. And if she's not in it with him, if they're not on the same page about what God's calling them to do, they do not green light it. I mean, it's like an X across the application. It doesn't matter how talented the guy is. It doesn't matter how fervently he believes God's calling him to do it. They've got to be in it together. And it's not just in ministry. It's in whatever you do. Uh, I think of Will and Carrie Davis, who along with Evan and Chrissy Bears are starting a, a business uh, that I think is fascinating. It's great, but it has cost starting a business, you know. And so uh, in Will and Carrie's life, I get on this all the time. You know, there's time costs, there's travel costs, there's late nights, they got three little kids. And I'm always kind of playing the accountability hounding type role with them, right? But one of the things that I've come to respect about them is that they are in this thing together, uh, he is not dragging her along into something at her expense. In fact, she might be a bigger fan of the thing than he is. Uh, she is so supportive, so with him. She understands very clearly what the cost is, and she's in it. She's willing to make the sacrifices. All I'm trying to get at here is, in whatever God has called you to, you've got to be on the same page about that. Work is not just the separate thing. See, our tendency is uh, to come together and think through, what kind of lifestyle do we want? Like, what is our agenda And then try to figure out a work situation that supports that agenda. That's just totally backwards. You've got to get with your spouse and you've got to say, what is God calling us to? What is the mission that he wants us on? And now let's work through not just our work situations, but where we live, how we spend our money, how we fill our schedules, all of that. Let's figure out how all of that can support what God is calling us to. The purpose of your marriage is not to secure comfort and status. It's not to keep up with the people that you compare yourselves to. It's to pursue the mission of God. So how does God want you to live your life together? And what are the implications for your job and for your finances and for your time? I just can't uh, tell you how many couples overlook those really basic questions. And they end up settling for a life of just maintaining the status quo and they don't even know why. I mean, we fall into that rut. We've got to be awakened to what God's calling us to do. 
This is not something you just plan out, you know, like you get away for a weekend and you figure it all out and then it's done. You just, it just gets set in motion. It's not like that. Right? God doesn't show you everything at once. He leads you. And so you, you walk with him, you discern his leading, and you have an ongoing conversation with your spouse about that. And so practically what that means is, is you may need like time away, a weekend planning retreat to figure out what is God calling us to, how's that going to look in our family. Uh, but you also need, on a more regular basis, just little times of connection and conversation. You have to actually talk to each other about this stuff. And so uh, a couple things Debbie and I do is we started this maybe 10 years ago. And we have couch time, which is a 15-minute time after dinner where we sit on the couch and we talk about our day and what's going on. Sometimes I take a nap, but we, um, and the kids are not allowed. And they try to jump up on the couch and I, I punt them. You know, they're not allowed to interfere with couch time which is really, really good for them because they understand that mommy and daddy love each other and are committed to, to being together. That's a side point. Well, sometimes couch time goes an hour in our house. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But it's just this daily time that Debbie and I connect about our day and what God's doing. It's not always spiritual, but it's great if it is. Uh, another thing is date night. Um, you know, that, that's become like the measure of godliness in our culture, but it really is important. Uh, what we're Debbie and our, we struggle to figure out how this works. Uh, recently, here's the pattern that we've adopted. Every other week, we go out on a date and we just do something fun. We do something fun together that we both enjoy. And on the other weeks, uh, we do something at home after the kids go to bed, and it's, that's really more focused on talking. Like just talking about what's going on in our lives, what God's doing. All right? So that helps me as a dude. Because sometimes when I get to date night and I don't know what's coming, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to talk all night about my feelings, you know? But if I know it's coming every other week, I can totally gear up for that. And I'm ready for it, and I'm ready to dive into it. All right? But you just have to establish some rhythms of talking about what kind of marriage you want to have and what that means for you. All right, husbands, when you talk about those things with your wife, it is not pressure to all of a sudden be that way. That's why some husbands don't talk to their wives, because they don't want the accountability of the conversation. All right? Your wife just wants to know that you're thinking about the future of your marriage and that you're interested in it. Wives, celebrate what God has done in your husband's life. He just wants you to appreciate him, accept him, and celebrate what God has done in his life. If you do that, you'll see so much change in him. That's how you change a dude. FYI. All right. Singles, this can cause some tension because as you progress in your careers and then you meet people, you start to wrestle through that question of like, are we headed in the same direction? And that is a paramount question that you've got to figure out. You meet somebody, uh, one of the questions you want to ask them is, is what is God's calling in your life? Like, wh- what are you about? And if they don't know, that's okay, but they need to be committed to seeking that out. And if they're not committed to seeking that out, that's like red flag, punt that guy or girl, all right? Um, here, here's the advice that I heard somebody give once, because somebody was asking this guy named Greg, you know, what, what about, like, we're headed in these directions, and Greg just said, look, God never calls a married couple in two different directions. Right, so if you feel like you're going two different directions, then that's probably not God's calling in your life. All right, third dynamic. We're going to move quickly through these. Uh, these have to do with how we receive our spouse. And the first one is that we receive them as a gift. Uh, Adam rejoices. He breaks out into poetry. This is what men do when they meet girls. They write poems. Uh, Debbie tells me that I used to write poems for her. Um, Here's what I'm going to say here. I'm just going to say one thing because it's really important. Um, Your spouse is a tremendous gift from God, but it doesn't always feel like it. Like when they do that thing, that thing they always do, it's really hard to rejoice and receive them as a gift in those moments. And I want to say this because I think... uh, 
your marriage and your view of your spouse as a gift from God is at the center of what the enemy is trying to do in your life. Uh, in Genesis 3, we'll see that the enemy attacks and he launches his attack on God's design for marriage. And he does this in your marriage in very subtle ways. He's, he's really patient like that. Here's how it works. He wants to convince you that your spouse is not a gift but a curse. And so it starts like this. Your spouse will do something or not do something and you'll just have this thought. It'll be like, man, he's so lazy. Or like, man, she is so controlling. Like, oh my gosh, we just do not have anything in common. Right? And, th- and that thought will just go unchecked. You'll have it multiple times, but then it begins to grow. It's like a little seed. You know, he just plants these little seeds of doubt or resentment or bitterness, and it grows. And those thoughts become things like, that guy is worthless. I have got to get away from her. I, I married the wrong person. When, listen, those thoughts are not from God. And when you cultivate them, you entertain them, you don't bring them into the light, you just let them sit there, they grow. And I'm telling you, your enemy is so patient. He will wait and wait and water and wait until someday it just blows up. Any marriage you know of that has grown cold or that has ended in divorce, it didn't just happen. It happened over time. It happened below the surface. It began in their thoughts toward one another. So at the heart of a good marriage is a couple that reminds themselves often that they are God's gift to each other. And here's how you do that. You very practically uh, say, you are not my enemy. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Uh, the very first marriage conference that Debbie and I ever went to, it was our first year of marriage, and they made us turn to each other and say, you are not my enemy. Like we had to look at each other and say that. It just felt stupid. It has been one of the best little nuggets of wisdom ever because uh, there are times now in the middle of an argument, uh, usually Debbie, but one of us will say, you're not my enemy. You can't argue with that. Like You can't keep arguing. It, it's, it's over. It diffuses everything. It doesn't solve the problem, but it does all of a sudden change the orientation of the discussion from this to turning together against a common enemy to getting on the same page and working toward reconciliation and redemption rather than just trying to win. Because when the enemy puts you against each other, winning is losing. Here's the other thing. You've got to verbally encourage and affirm one another in all the things that they bless you with. Marriage conference we went to a few years later was smaller. It was like 25 couples, maybe not even that many. We're all just in this room together. And again, Debbie and I have been married like three years at the time. And most of the couples in the room have been married 10, 15 years. And uh, in this exercise, we had to sit knee to knee. Knees are touching, and we're just looking at each other. And we had to say, I'm thankful to God for you because, and fill in the blank. And we're like, okay, that's not that big a deal. And we didn't go first. Some, all the other couples went, and you could hear. They went one at a time, and you could hear them. We got to this one couple that had been married, oh man, maybe 15 or 20 years, and she could not fill in the blank. She said, I'm thankful for you because, and then there was just silence, and she just began to weep. That didn't just happen that day. 
Those were thoughts that were cultivated. There were seeds that were planted. There was bitterness that wasn't tended to. It happens over time. So listen, in your marriage, whatever those thoughts are, and we have them, I have crazy thoughts. I'm telling you right now, if you knew some of the thoughts I had, you would fire me probably, okay? I have nutso in my brain. But it's not me. It's the enemy planting stuff in my head. And I have a choice in that moment to like, you know, play with that a little bit or to reject it as false, as a lie. And to rejoice in God's truth that Debbie has given to me as a provision, as a gift. Here's the last thing. Embrace differences. Um, the major difference between Adam and Eve, of course, is their gender. We don't, most of us don't have a problem with that. The problem we have is the differences in their roles, right? And so they are created equally. They are created with uh, dignity. They're created uniquely in the image of God. But they have distinct roles uh, in both their marriage and in their work and in how life plays out for them. And the reason this is so important is because if you want to do the other things that we've talked about, cultivate friendship with God, live on his mission, uh, receive each other as a gift, you've got to receive God's design for marriage according to these roles. And so very quickly, um, Adam is given uh, the role of authority. And when we hear the word authority, we're automatically like, no, I'm not good with that. Because it just it reeks of like superiority and rank-and-file relationships. Uh, you know, it's like a guy gets to impose his will upon the woman so that she does what he wants. That's... That's the connotation of authority in our culture. It's not even close to the meaning here. In the Bible, authority is a means of blessing and serving others. So you see that when Adam gets authority over the land and the animals, it is toward the end of cultivating the beauty of the creation. And Adam is given authority in his role and his relationship with Eve, and it is given as a means of cultivating her beauty, of helping her become everything that God intends her to be. Uh, the clearest expression of biblical authority is Jesus. He has rightful authority over us, but he uses it to lay down his life for us. That's why in Ephesians, when Paul quotes the Genesis text and his instruction on marriage, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for them. Eve is given the role of helper. In creation, another word that uh, doesn't sit well with us, but it actually doesn't speak of weakness, it speaks of strength. And so helper, when it's used in scripture, is usually or often used of God. And so it's like God is my help, my refuge in time of need. It's actually a military term that means reinforcements. And so often when Israel is going to get destroyed unless God steps in, he helps them. That's the word here. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a strong word. It's a divine word. And so when God says, I will make a helper fit for him, uh, the word is like, I will make uh, a helper that is like opposite him. Right? It's like him, but it's not like him. It's, it's complementary. It's like a puzzle, right? So if two puzzle pieces are exactly the same, it does you no good. They have to be different, and they have to be rightly different so that they fit together. That's what God's doing in these roles. He's fitting together two people, so that they can serve him. Uh, the clearest picture of submission or helper in Scripture is, again, Jesus. It's in the profession of faith that we read in Philippians 2, that Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but voluntarily, voluntarily submitted himself to the point of death on a cross for us. That's the role that a, a wife plays in her husband's life. She uses her, her power, her insight, her ability, the way that God has made her to fill up what is lacking in her husband so that together they can serve God. 
I want you to see that when the Bible talks about helping and submitting, it's not portraying weakness, but strength. Not inferiority at all, but glory. When Jesus laid down his life, it didn't lead uh, to, to inferiority. It actually led him to greater glory. Here's some practical application about how that works out in your marriage, and then we'll wrap up. If you're married, then God has put somebody like you, but very different than you, in your life. And he's put them there for a reason, so that he could grow you in his likeness. You need your spouse in this way. Now, because of the differences, it causes you a lot of friction. If you don't embrace the differences, especially the difference of roles in your marriage, it's going to cause all kinds of conflict. It's going to be conflict either way. And so our tendency is, uh, when there's conflict, is to run and hide, just like Adam and Eve did. But the conflict is actually put there so that you could be formed by God. Here's, here's a, I was talking to a couple recently. They were talking about some of the fights they were having, and it was kind of, they were saying crazy stuff to each other and all that. And, uh, but then he was talking about how, how many days it has been since they had fought. He actually compared it to like the number of, you know, like the OSHA, number of days of safety on the job site. You know, he was like, yeah, I've kind of got this little thing in my head of like nine days, ten days, you know. Which there's something to really celebrate there. That's, that's, that could be a real evidence of God's grace. But it just occurred to me, it's like, hey, hold on. Let's not make the, the standard or the measure of biblical marriage how long it's been since you fought. You're going to fight. You are so different in every way possible. You don't, you don't brush your teeth the same way. You're going to fight, okay? Let's make the measure, if we're going to measure something, let's not make it about our performance. Let's make it about the gospel. Let's measure how quick we are to confess and repent. So, look, you, you have pastor's permission to fight and argue in your marriage. But what the gospel wants to do in your marriage is to move you quickly, more and more quickly, to confession and forgiveness and repentance. A healthy marriage is marked by that. And so just ask your spouse, not right now, but afterward, how often you guys confess and forgive each other of sin. I mean, like, actually, not in theory, but you actually verbally say, I've sinned against you in this way, I need your forgiveness, and the other person says, I forgive you. How often does that happen? If that doesn't happen very often, then you're not actually applying the gospel to your marriage. You, you might understand it, you might get it in theory, but in, in reality, like in the day-to-day stuff of your relationship, you're not doing it. If you are living a, a biblical, godly, healthy marriage, there, there should be a pattern of confession and forgiveness. I say this in wedding ceremonies. I say your tendency uh, when there's conflict will be to move away from one another. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that while we were running from God in the opposite direction, he moved toward us. And so the gospel in your marriage is that you move toward one another by the grace of God. All right, those are the four things. You've got to cultivate relationship with God. You've got to be given to something that's bigger than the marriage itself. You've got to receive each other as a gift from God. You've got to embrace the differences, the God-given differences and the differences of just, you know, the fall that are in you. Embrace those and move toward one another. I know that I've kind of just like shotgunned a whole bunch of marriage stuff at you, all right? And so I don't assume that everything I've said applies to you. Uh, But I do think that probably something does. Something sticks on the wall of your mind, you know, like a conversation that you need to have uh, probably with your spouse, so let me just say, don't harden your heart to that. Don't, don't postpone it. Don't put it off. You'll forget about it. 
Don't squander an opportunity to really help your marriage today. Just have the conversation. Move toward one another. Relationships are uh, crazy hard if you want them to get better. If you don't want them to get better and it doesn't matter and you just want to maintain status quo, that's cool. Just do your thing. Coexist. But if you actually want to grow in oneness, it is so hard. It's so hard. But it's worth it. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God commits himself to us in a covenant relationship. And he promises us he will never leave nor forsake us. And as you see in Scripture, the nation of Israel is often called an adulterous whore. All right? That's who we are with God. He doesn't leave. He doesn't forsake. He changes us and he calls us to himself. And it's by that power and by that grace that we can do the same with one another and covenant to each other. In Omaha, uh, I met this guy who was in his 50s, and he just become a Christian. And he said, you know, now that I'm a Christian, uh, I've got a divorce file with my wife, and I'm just kind of curious, what kind of wife does God want me to look for now? I was like, well, hold up, back up. You, you have a wife? That's the one God wants you to look for now. That's the one. Go, go be married to her. Well, he'd already moved out. They already had papers filed. That thing was as good as done. And I was like, well... Yeah, but you need to go back to her and beg her forgiveness for all the things that you've done and ask her to take you back. Now, never in my wildest dreams I think he would actually do that. He did. He left there. He went straight back there that night, confessed. She took him back, and it was not easy. Uh, they, they were in our living room like every week or so, just airing it out, helping, getting us to help him walk through stuff. And they're still in process, but it's been about four or five years now. And they have grown in the gospel to each other. It's crazy. I've, I've been at church with them. They've been holding hands with one hand, praising God with the other, singing. I mean, they could have never imagined living a life like that together. It is a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do. And it's the same power that's available in whatever you're going through right now. But you've got to take the initiative, and you've got to walk by faith. Right, let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.